Good evening, you are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 9 p.m. on CJSW 90.9 FM. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on CJSW.com. Tonight's episode of Writer's Block features an interview with Paul Zizka, followed by a short story by Emily Costa, followed up finally by an interview with Natalie Meisner and Heidi Grogan. After that, we'll have a fun short bonus literary segment. Without further ado, let's get started. First up is the interview with Maddie Robinson and Paul Zizka. Stay tuned. Good evening, everyone. You are listening to CJSW's monthly foray into the world of Canadian literature and publishing. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Paul Ziska about his new book, Spirits in the Sky, with Rocky Mountain Books. Uh, hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm really good, Maddie. How are you? I am doing uh, excellent this evening. Thank you so much for the opportunity for an interview on Writer's Block. We typically like to interview kind of more literary work, but I think that a picture can say a thousand words, and I know that you are a photographer and there is still some writing in your book. Um, so I wanted to reach out to you and talk to you about your new photography book today. Um, first off, I wanted to ask what, what inspired you to publish a book of all your Aurora photography? I felt like I had enough material to present it to the world. You know, I think as a photographer, it's always exciting to, to have a way to present a cohesive body of work to an audience. And at the same time, you could always keep shooting for any given book, right? It's hard to draw the line and determine, okay, when do I have enough material that uh, it's worth putting a book out there? It's not going to feel like a stretch. It's going to feel like a really, really strong body of work that I can present to people. So I've always felt very passionate about the phenomenon of the Northern Lights. I think it's one of the most exhilarating, beautiful subjects that one can ever hope to witness or photograph. And it was clear from day one, um, when I started photography, photographing in Northern Lights, I wanted to bring that to the world eventually in one way or another. Of course, social media is great and the online world is great, but there's nothing quite like seeing a cohesive body of work all about one subject in print. And so um, I felt like, yeah, about two years ago, I felt like I had enough material for a book and I reached out to the publisher and Rocky Mountain Books were on board and uh, we went from there and the, the result I think is wonderful. I think like after I was looking at the photos, I really, really wanted to travel and go see them. So I think you accomplished your goal, your goal quite well. Um, <laughs> um, this book is really cool too, because I was looking through it and they're not just all photos of the sky. Like some are framed with mountains, some are kind of framed with trees, some are kind of more long exposure shots. I don't know too much about photography, but I really liked how you played around with them. One right at the end even has a photo kind of on your back porch with your daughter watching the Northern Lights, which I thought was very, very sweet. I definitely, yeah, I definitely saw the variance in all the different photos. And I think I think it was a wonderful collection. Um, I did want to ask, speaking of social media, I actually follow a lot of Aurora photography blogs, like on, on Facebook and on Instagram and Tumblr, because I think they're so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, um, a lot of people claim that nighttime photography is often kind of oversaturated or edited after to kind of like heighten the colors. Um, I was wondering if you ever need to do that or if you you actually 
if you're good enough with photography that at the moment you can capture the colors on your camera? Like, do you ever have to edit them after to kind of touch them up or are they just raw photos? That's a really good question. I think one thing that's important to understand when you do any kind of nighttime photography is that you're, you're forced to suspend the idea of the idea that you should render and present a scene as you saw it when you were out there. You're working in very dark conditions. And if you were to show people what it looked like to the naked eye, you would show them black photos over and over again. So <laughs> right away, when you do nighttime photography, you're forced to basically give up on the idea that you're going to show the scene as you saw it. You have to accept that your eyes, your, your human eyes are too limited to pick up on all that beauty. And instead, we rely on the technology, which has evolved amazingly well and now allows us to reveal a lot of the beauty that is there in the night sky. It's just we can't see it with our limited human eyesight. And so right away, I think it's important for people to understand that we're, we're not necessarily making things up. We're just relying on technology to reveal the beauty that is unseen. And then we're also typically working with raw files as photographers. So typically when I shoot at night, uh, I have my saturation, contrast, all those settings set at zero. And then I adjust them after the fact. Because I'm relying on the camera to show me what's there, it's hard to figure out where to stop when you move the sliders around, you know, and, and I think you have some photographers who are a little bit more liberal with how much <laughs> saturation they'll go with. Correct. And you have photographers <laughs> who just photographers who like to tone it down a little bit and keep the sliders in check. And I think we all evolve as photographers. I recall the days where I would crank the, satur the saturation pretty high. And now I feel like I've sort of brought things back to more, I suppose, you know, um, more subdued changes that I make to the images. But all, all that to say, uh, the nighttime photography, especially when you shoot in the raw format, it's expected that you're going to do some amount of editing. And then it's it, then after that, it's in an, it's a whole spectrum in terms of how much, how far you're going to push the sliders. But I would say in our part of the world, Aurora images rarely look like anything that you saw in the field to the naked eye. Now, if you go to the high latitudes, occasionally you'll get big displays and you can tell comp people with confidence, this is exactly what it looked like. It looked, it's one of those instances where it looked like the photos, but at our latitude, you know, Banff, Calgary, it's pretty rare. That makes sense. I mean, I think you want to capture the, the spirit of the lights. And it's almost like any emotion portrayed in any form of art, you kind of want to like push that emotion forward or, or push that sensation or the color or whatever it is forward. Because if you're there in real life, you're going to experience it. But if you like you said, if you look at a blank page, and it's a really dark sky, <laughs> you're not going to really get the same feeling. So I know it's about kind of emphasizing I guess like emphasizing the experience or emphasizing the visuals because people who are not there can't really understand like what it really looks like because they move as well, right? They do move. And that's a good point. You know, it's about you, you want to perhaps share the, the array of colors with the audience. But what's amazing about the Aurora is that it, it just keeps presenting itself in different ways. And the motion is always slightly different. And so that's something else that you know, that you can capture with the camera that, you know, there, there, there's, there's less arguing about the motion that you showcase in your image than there is about the colors, you know, and, and then some people like cooler tones, like bluer lights, other people like yellower green lights. It, it's, it's a matter of, I think it's a matter of taste, really, because we're all, 
it's hard to argue about something that nobody can really see with the naked eye. Yes, for sure. And I, I yeah. and I think a lot of it probably is too. People also know that it really does depend on your lighting. I mean, I bought a, a really old, like I think it's a 1981 one step from someone's basement, like a Polaroid camera. And I didn't realize how, because you have to mess with kind of the, the lighting setting on it. Otherwise, like it's a really basic little slider, but otherwise it comes out oversaturated. Of course, I know nothing about photography. I was just messing around with this camera. And I was like, oh yeah, these, these definitely don't even with just a basic Polaroid, it doesn't always look exactly as it would in person, but it does have a very cool effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And it's been shown even that different people, depending on age, as one of many other factors, different people will pick up different colors to the next. So someone Interesting. might, yeah, so someone might come out, you know, the next day and say, oh, I totally saw some purple and reds to the naked eye, whereas the majority of the population will say, no, there wasn't any red or purple. So there's arguing even around that. So, so you know, in a way, in a way, there's no, it, it's kind of, um, I, I think people spend way too much time arguing about how believable a photo is or not, given that even to the naked eye, two different people might perceive colors differently, regardless of the whole photography side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I once went meteor, like meteor shower watching with a friend of mine. And it was really funny because I kept catching the meteors because I was quite quick, but he caught none of them. So again, <laughs> really depends on kind of your eyes, I think, with the night sky as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, the next question actually is kind of related to the colors. So I found it so interesting. You mentioned that um, to actually take photos of the nighttime sky and auroras, it's actually good to have some basic scientific understanding. So you know, kind of what you're taking photographs of. Um, you do mention that the reason the northern lights are, are green is because the color of the lights actually depends on what gases are in the air. And so green is oxygen, whereas the reds and the purples are like nitrogen and, other, and helium and other gases. I thought that was really cool. I actually didn't know that why they were different colors. I never thought of looking into that. So that's, that's really interesting, I guess. <laughs> it, it's really cool. I think re regardless, I think when you're passionate about photographing something, um, sooner or later, you start to wonder about, well, how, how does that thing even happen? Why is that thing even you know, occurring yeah. in front of me. And so it's interesting to learn about the science, but uh, I think the Aurora has tons of little bits of science like that behind it. They're um, really, really fascinating. And a lot of that science is new, is, is fairly recent. Um, you know, it's it, the accuracy with which we're able to predict Aurora events now compared to when I started even, you know, 12, 15 years ago when I started shooting the Aurora. I mean, we would spend a lot more time driving around and staying up late for nothing than we do now. <laughs> the, the, um, the science has gotten way better, whether it's, you know, trying to determine what, why we get certain colors or whether the Aurora is going to show up at all. Yeah, well, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I've tried to go like Aurora seeking and I find that it's very hit or miss. Like I <laughs> last year, actually, because I know that it seems like we're getting a lot more solar activity lately, at least I've noticed. Maybe that's just me because I'm on the lookout. But um, me and my my friends, we went out <laughs> to try and see the Aurora and it was it was a total bust. It was really funny. Actually, we stayed up super late. We got McDonald's. I mean, I got some some great spicy chicken McNuggets, but there was there was no <laughs> Aurora. <laughs> so it was it was fun, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> I guess, I guess for you, even it's probably hit or miss, right? Like you never know for certain if they're coming out. It is. And even if you're, you know, somewhat educated about the science and you try and you get better at making the right guess, 
there's still always going to be, I think, some amount of uncertainty, which does keep things really exciting. I think if you if it was a sure bet every time and you knew, you know, you had a clear yes or no, the lights are going to show or not. I don't know. It wouldn't be, you know, the thrill of the chase, I think, would be gone. And the images, I don't think, would mean nearly as much. So I, I kind of like that despite the advances in Aurora science, there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot of experts miss the mark on a regular basis still. You actually make a very good point. I didn't think of that, but I think that's partly why they're so special is that you never, you never really know when they're coming out. Um. <laughs> for sure. You know, I know people who live in uh, people, I have friends, for example, who live in Yellowknife and latitudes that get where they get the lights regularly. And, you know, most of them, a lot of them will say, yeah, I don't know. I, they're, they're out all the time. So uh, I, I'm just used to them being there. And so they, they might be shaking their heads a little bit as to why visitors might go up to a place like Yellowknife <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and just miss out on sleep and be all fired up about something that they themselves see on an almost on a nightly basis. Yeah, I think that's actually kind of a funny story. But I also think in Canada, we generally have like we have the Rocky Mountains. And I know a lot of tourists will even say like, wow, you guys have those mountains there. and You take them for granted as if they're just, you know what I mean? So it's interesting that I guess it's true. If you lived up there and you saw them all the time, they wouldn't be as special. I never thought about that, but it's true. So speaking of, I guess my next question is, I, I noticed in your book that you've gone all around the world looking at the Northern Lights. And I was wondering, like, are there any really good places for kind of like a rookie or someone like me who lives in Calgary to kind of go stargazing or or northern light seeking like any places you would recommend i would say i usually recommend for people who want to really just get have the best chances of seeing a big show i think you can't beat yellow knife right in All our right. own country here especially people who are based out of you know the major urban centers in western canada where it's pretty easy and affordable to just shoot up to yellow knife for like three four nights if even even last minute, if you see that the aurora forecast looks good, the weather forecast looks good, book a last minute flight and shoot up to Yellowknife. And I find if you want to see a big dazzling display that will just, you know, blow your socks off, then that's probably the best place that I know of in the world. In terms of photography, you know, Yellowknife is, has got tons of potential, it, but it's, you know, it's Canadian shield country. I wouldn't say it's the most epic landscape in the world. So from a photography perspective, when it comes to Aurora, you know, whenever they do show up in the Rockies here is very special. And whenever you can pair them up with the skylines that we have here and the lakes, etc., it's very, very special. Otherwise, probably Greenland, I would say, is my favorite place to shoot the Aurora with you know, the icebergs, the glaciers, I find that there's so much potential for, for that type of photography. But otherwise, just, yeah, book a, you know, plan a trip to Yellowknife in the fall when it's not too cold, you know, around October. <laughs> yeah, that would be my recommendation. I'll keep that in mind. I do want to do more traveling around Canada because you know, we have a beautiful country. So I'll keep that in mind. Thanks for, for answering that. You bet. Um, <laughs> speaking, speaking of, I guess, framing shots, I, I know in the book that you mentioned that Aurora photography uh, requires kind of a complex blend of, you know, scientific understanding, technical expertise, creativity, patience, and a dose of sheer luck. I think that's kind of funny because a lot of people say the same of, of writing creative fiction or publishing is that you need all these things, but at the end of the day, you also kind of need a little bit of luck. Um, so I thought I'd mm -hmm. ask you, how much do you think luck has kind of played into your photography career? Like, was it, do you think there's a lot of lucky breaks you got, or do you think it's only sometimes luck with the Aurora? I, I would say 
looking at the career as a whole, there's no, there's no question that I got the odd lucky break and I ended up at the right place at the right time. I mean, I, I should mention, I've been doing photography full-time for about 12 years now mm-hmm. and there's nothing else I'd rather do. I'm very thankful that I get to do photography mm-hmm. for a living, but at the same end, and I worked, you know, I worked really hard, of course, but there's no question that looking back, especially with hindsight, there's some, there's the odd thing that the odd moment that happened that, you know, you look back on and you, you, you really realize that you were in the right place at the right time or met the right person, et cetera, to team up with. And so I got, um, yeah, I was fortunate for sure over the course of my career. And then in terms of the Aurora, I think, I think the, the luck plays less and less of a role as the science gets better, as I get better as an observer and at understanding the phenomenon and understanding light and, and photography in general, it plays less and less of a role. I think it's fair to say, but really, I think it's always going to be one of the ingredients in the, in that whole equation. I mean, there's times where you, you just decide to bail on a location and drive 15 minutes to another spot. And that's when the big, sh- that's when the Aurora just picks up yeah, like crazy yeah. and you're in the car and there's nothing to shoot. Oh. And I would, you know, I'd say <laughs> yeah. that's probably a good example of, you know, bad luck. No, even if you, you, you're out there, you're putting in the work, you're dedicated, you, you saw the event coming. There's, there's like, you, you can't see things coming on such a, you know, short notice time scale yeah. right like you know that there's going to be some aurora action this evening but you know you can't you can't tell what's going to happen down to the minute so that's one example of when you know sometimes you don't you're not very lucky and sometimes well as soon as you feel like you're a little bit behind schedule and as soon as you get to your location it's like the aurora waits for you and as soon as you get there it just explodes just as you've set up your composition um, so yeah, there, there's, you win some, you lose some, but it's always, it's always thrilling. Uh, I, I think for me, like I said, the chase is always a big part of the fun. The, the photos are one thing, but just trying to capture the phenomenon and hopefully bring it to the world is probably even more rewarding in a way than, um, than having some, having images to show for it. Totally. I think it'd be, it's fun because there's that aspect of adventure in the career as well. <laughs> kind of the, the wheel of fortune. Absolutely. Um, well, well, thank you so much for answering a lot of my questions. I don't know if, if you had anything you wanted to mention as well or any questions of yourself. Not really. I, I just, I would highly encourage people if you've never seen, uh, if you've never seen the Aurora for yourself, I mean, it's one thing to see the Aurora in print and that's, you know, in a way for is that's, that's as close as I can get people to the Aurora is publish this cohesive collection of my favorite Aurora moments out there. But, you know, especially as the world is reopening and things are looking, looking up with, um, you know, everything that's happened over the last couple of years, just make some time in your, make some time in your schedule to go chase the Aurora locally, depending on where you live. And if you live in a non-Aurora location, plan that trip up to Yellowknife or somewhere, whether you're five or 55 or a hundred years old, it's something that will stay with you forever. If you can witness a big show in person, it's something that is really, really special. And I would highly encourage people pursue that in the short term if they can. 
It's definitely a bucket list thing for me. Absolutely. I'm sure it also encourages people to really get out there and explore for themselves, which I think is always a good thing. I read I read some mountaineering books a few years ago for a class I took, and I, it kind of encouraged me to go out to the Rockies more because I was like, yeah, we have some beautiful mountains out here too. It's I feel like we take it for granted sometimes, especially if you live kind of in Alberta or British Columbia, but it's definitely inspiring. It is the kind of photography that makes you want to go out, not just look at photos, even though the photos are gorgeous. <laughs> That's well, my hope. The book, the book just came out so time will tell but i'm really hoping that the book will get people excited to get out under the stars and hopefully under the aurora it's it's uh it's always time well spent to go out there on a clear night absolutely well thank you so much for your time i think this will conclude our interview for today um and thank you everyone for listening it was a pleasure maddie thank you For those who just tuned in, that was Maddie Robinson interviewing Paul Ziska about his new collection of Northern Lights photography called Spirits in the Sky. Spirits in the Sky was published by Rocky Mountain Books and is available for order from a local bookstore near you. You are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM, where we feature interviews with local authors and artists, as well as pieces of short fiction and poetry. Coming up next, we have a piece of short flash fiction by Emily Costa. Stay tuned. As Ernest Hemingway always said, write drunk, edit sober, and listen to CJSW. Space Cat. They're sending the cat into space. They're sewing a little suit for him, making a little tail hole in the suit. They're going to put a little diaper on him first. They're trimming his little nails so he won't claw the inside of his little capsule during takeoff. They're fitting a little camera on his helmet. There's a little helmet. And they're running tests to make sure the video will come through. See that on the TV? That's pretty much what he's seeing, what little pictures are bouncing around in his little brain. They're pampering him first, massaging the little pink beans of his toes, the little heart-shaped pads. They're running a little comb through his fur, and he's purring into little mews, a sort of unfurling of a mew, a little vibration into a mew, purr-ah, like that. He's happy, and he's getting a little salmon filet before blast-off, and a little saucer of milk. And the spacemen are singing him a little song, even though they really want to say, I'm glad it's you and not me. I'm not ready. I don't think I'll ever be ready. Why did I get into this line of work? And they're strapping him in with a little belt. And they're doing the countdown. And he's doing the little purr mews. And then one big mew. And then he's up there and going and going until he's so, so little. And when it doesn't work, we're all thinking or we're telling the children, our children watching on TV. We're telling them, oh, don't worry. He had a little parachute packed up in there. He landed in Hawaii. He's sitting in a little beach chair, drinking from a little coconut, a little umbrella poking out of it. He's living his little life.
For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 9 p.m. Mountain Time on CJSW 90.9 FM. We feature inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and other fun literary segments. That was a reading of the short story Space Cat by Emily Costa. Emily Costa is a writer from Waterbury, Connecticut. She received her MFA in fiction from Southern Connecticut State University, where she teaches and advises first-year students. Her book, Until It Feels Right, a collection of diary entries chronicling her experience with intensive CBT for obsessive-compulsive disorder, will be released in June 2022 from Autofocus Books. Coming up next, we have a short bonus segment on literary jokes and puns. Stay tuned! Alright, so what kind of dinosaur writes romantic novels? A brontosaurus! Get it? Like the the Bronte sisters? No? (laughs) Alright, well, did you hear about Jay Gatsby's new car? Yeah, I I heard it was a real hit with the ladies. Alright, so famous authors often love to host board game nights. So why wasn't John Milton ever invited? Well you see, no matter what game they tried to play, there was always a pair of dice lost. Get it? Like, paradise lost? Paradise no? Okay. Why does Stephen King always feel so chilly? Well. He's surrounded by giraffes. Get it? Like like air giraffes? Anyone? No? <laughs> okay, so what kind of spices do you find in Charles Dickens' pantry? The best of time and the worst of time. Okay, but what kind of flavors can you find in Kurt Vonnegut's fridge? Slaughterhouse chives. (laughs) And what about George Orwell's kitchen? Animal parm. Get it? Like, Like Parmesan cheese? Animal parm? No? For those who just tuned in, that was a short, fun literary segment on Writer's Block 90.9 FM. Keep that dial locked. Coming up next, we have an interview. Jenny Kwong is interviewing Natalie Meisner and Heidi Grogan on the Mothering Anthology. Stay tuned. CJSW, no adverbs allowed.
Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Reddit's Block. Today, I have an interview with Heidi Grogan and Natalie Meisner. Heidi Grogan is an editor along with Anne Sorby of the new anthology Mothering, which brings various perspectives together to talk about being a mother or parent to someone. And Natalie Meisner is a poet, playwright, and professor. She was Poet Laureate of Calgary from 2020 to 2022. Recently passing the torch to a new poet laureate of Calgary. Now here is my conversation with Heidi Grogan and Natalie Meisner. So welcome both of you. Thank you. So I guess we'll start with Heidi. I guess tell me about what the process was like putting the book together. I would say it was a, a labor of love with all that goes with labors of love. So Anne and I, Anne approached me um, to do this anthology with her. She was my mentor years ago. And um, so we put out the call and we were overwhelmed with the submissions that we received. So we went away and poured through them and, and were blown away by the by the breadth of experience of, of women and men who submitted uh, for our anthology. Um, so it was a gift. It's been hard work and good work. And we feel super honored to have brought these women alongside each other on the pages of this book. And so the book will be launching uh, May 17th? It will, in, in good time here for, for Mother's Day. And so Natalie, I guess, uh, tell me about the piece you wrote for the book. Sure. So I wrote a piece called Tiger's Milk. Um, and the, that poem was an attempt to deal with, um, I guess, what it is like to contemplate mothering and nurturing and breastfeeding when you are inhabiting a body that's slightly differently gendered, that is, uh, you know, unconventionally feminine, I guess, and also to cope with a lot of the cultural accoutrements that come with the, that feeling of nurturing or nursing that is often gendered, like it doesn't have to be, and I don't think it should be, but culture kind of layers on a lot of that stuff. And so in this poem, I wanted to cope with or to kind of dig into what I thought was my wildness or my ferocity as a woman and how that went in how that kind of dovetailed or didn't dovetail with breastfeeding which I found to be a really kind of a wild concept when I realized that I'd have to do it so that's what it's about and I guess uh, what was it like uh, talking with the other contributors and and shaping their poems to fit into the anthology it was interesting because Anne and I actually went away to Banff because there were so the submissions were so broad and varied and we wanted to make sure that we spoke broadly and so the representations of, of material that received poems and prose and art uh, represented gender adoptive parenting birth parenting parenting children who were very very sick um, parenting parents parenting grandchildren being a foster parent being alone in parenting parenting when it, when it wasn't something you decided you wanted to do and here you are and so we sat and we wanted to make sure we had the shape um, of an anthology that reflected voices that are often marginalized versus the traditional views of what people might think of when they think of mothering an, an example is now you know it's mother's day is coming up and if you go to a card store there are cards for the traditional understanding of, of mothering, and that's not what our book is about. And so when we were curating the book or the anthology, we wanted all of these voices to be heard. 
And I guess, uh, Nelly, uh, you spoke about wanting to talk about having a queer identity as well as being a mother. And so how was that to write on a page? Um, and I'm actually just looking, I'm like, it was uh, some of the same themes, but I think the title was Left Me Open, not <laughs> Tiger's Milk. Tiger's Milk was a piece that on the same topic that I actually published in another magazine in, in the Maritimes. So my bad. So this one was Left Me Open. But I do, but I can kind of make some links to the, you know, it, it is kind of similar in that I felt that I wanted to deal with some of the toughness or some of the kind of strength as a queer woman that I felt like I've carried forth into the world and how that, you know, how that then is dovetailing or not with being a mom and with what nurturing kind of means. And so there are elements like of the physical mothering process that were completely alien to me when women said, oh, this comes so naturally. I was like, no, it doesn't. You know, this is a learned behavior. This is not, you know, this is something that I am carefully uh, learning how to do. It's a skill. So it was some aspects of it are very alien. And yet as a writer, I think one of the biggest gifts is to be alienated from an experience so that you can learn from it. So I think, you know, it's, I keep saying this to people, being a parent, being an unconventional parent, being a queer parent is one of the best things I've ever done like mm. for, my, for my writer self, I, for my writer self, but for my human self, because I think it has kind of opened me to experiences, impressions in, in a way and a later part of life. Whereas I think that I might have closed myself off with all the armor that you need to be a, you know, a differently gendered person, to be a woman in the world, to be a queer person, you build up lots of calluses, right? And so, um, yeah, that piece is really looking at like, you need the calluses, you need the armor, but then you have to let your guard down in order to differently parent different kinds of kids. And so what was it like to give the space for all the different experiences you want to, to capture of motherhood and parenting that you uh, just spoke about, uh, Heidi? It was wonderful and it was creative. And when we, when Anna and I came up with the idea of mothering, the M is bracketed, as Natalie just spoke of, it's, it's about othering. And so it was really, um, I think about honoring brave, brave women who would step into that space of mothering, being willing to be othered, especially when we're not traditional mothers. I came to the anthology to answer your question from this direction um, as an adoptive mother, as a mother who can't nurse because I've had a, I've had a couple of mastectomies in my life. So I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to step into the mother identity when my body hasn't suggested that's what we're going to do? And so my mothering has been through the lens of birth mothers who also need a lot of armor to receive the feedback from people that you are a mother who gave your child away. I had one mother, I used to work um, at an agency that supported women leaving the sex trade and many of their children were apprehended or they made the choice for adoption. And one woman said to me, I don't want people to say I gave my baby away. I gave my baby. And so there's an armor to that, that, that I think comes alongside how Natalie expressed, what does it mean to step into, you're a mother for life when you're a birth mother. Every Mother's Day comes Saturday is birth mother's day and there are no cards on the shelf there. Every time it's the first day of school, you know, there's, there's grief and you make that choice again and again. And so I've come to mothering in partnership with our birth mothers who are very gracious. I remember hugging our 
first our son's birth mother when we first met in the parking lot and you're not supposed to do that when you meet and just going I could feel in between us and I thought oh, we're going to do this together and you don't even know me to trust me and I'm coming at this from from loss and so this is a gift and you're coming at this from loss and so I guess I would say that when we put together this anthology the lens Natalie has spoken of and what I've shared here is bringing in you know women who've had their children um, apprehended when their lives have been so wrecked and they're working so hard um, to regroup and women who who find themselves in a parenting role that they didn't expect we have a we have stories that from from women who are whose children have passed away from children who from mothers who are whose children are very very sick whose mothers are whose children are living rough on the street um, who find themselves parenting their nieces and so it, it was a joy to find pages and space for those stories to be told. I think that some of the stories are very, are, are, are very direct and very rough and not nice. And there's some that are beautiful and tender. And I think the contributors have been so honest about the experience and have held nothing back. I mean, they are so brave. And I think that's, so we are othered in experience as, as Natalie has articulately said. And our hope is that readers will see that when you are brave that way, perhaps that othering occurs like in ripples in a sense that when we see some people being brave to write about it and, and bring their art, that perhaps then there's a freedom for people to see differently what it means to mother and be othered. And then perhaps society can be othered to look to the people who are mothering from the margins with deep, deep respect. And how do, uh, I guess, young mothers build those uh, support networks that mm-hmm. are needed to... Um, mm-hmm mother and thinking about not only the immediate needs of the child but also like like a future like what the future looks like for the family or the yeah it's a good question I mean I think people come at it differently and I I might try to answer our the question in terms of some of the art that's in the anthology and so not only to new young mothers but mothers who are looking for that support network we have some beautiful art by Sabine LaCourmore and Patricia Lorty. And it's a, it's a forest of mothers. I mean, it's beautiful in how we stand together, but often mothering is just super lonely <laughs> as well. I mean, for me, my support community was our birth mothers and, and the women who had been so gracious um, with me. I mean, it was one mother who had her child taken at birth when she thought he'd be coming home. And she said, I really want to do this, but here's, and so don't say no, please, Heidi. Here's the high chair here's all the newborn clothes. And so that's what we received. And so I think sometimes that network comes from unlikely places. There are some tremendous programs in Alberta to support young moms, but I worry for the moms who are, who are mothering from unlikely ways, who supports the grandma, who's mothering her grandchild when really tired, but she, her heart is full of love, who supports mothers whose children are very, very sick and they're they're headed to the hospital every day and they're very, very tired. Who supports mothers whose children are really struggling and living rough downtown? Because you feel like a bad mom and, and you know your friends are talking about you or you wonder if they are and you wonder who you can share with. And so I think sometimes the women that we've invited to bring their words and experiences to the page might have found it hard to have a support network. And there's others who bring their words to the page who bring such tender writing about the importance of having that support network. There's one story, um, Talbot Crescent, uh, about a woman who really needed her neighbor, but there's another woman who she was aware was alone, 
and 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 judged in the small town and bruises covered up and things. And so when you're when you're alone and life is not going well, it's hard to reach out as well. And you still have to be a mom. How often do you get to reflect on being a mother in writing versus the, your day to day life as a mother? Hmm. How, how how do you write about it while also being the mother? I mean, I give a very short answer and then tag Natalie. I don't know if I could mother without writing. <laughs> That's that's lovely. And I also just wanted to reflect for a moment on, on what you said, Heidi, that I think, you know, how do we build support networks or how do we support moms? One of the ways that I think I learned how to parent was by being what I call the super auntie. And this was not, these were, I was a super auntie to children who are not biologically related to me and a super auntie to a few who were, but Primarily, like building on the notion of the chosen family, I had the opportunity to see people who were in need, who had children. And I thought, I want children in my life. You know, I want to be a part of that generation. And I learned some skills and became kind of like a satellite to their family before I had biological children of my own. And so I would say to young people, you know, who are missing that next generation, then look for opportunities for chosen family, like pitch in and help the parents, um, the mothers or any parents who are struggling. If you see a need there, kind of make yourself available and see if you can be a useful appendage. That's what I always saw myself as. I would be like, hey, could I be a useful appendage to this family as a, as a young queer person? Because I had lost family members of my own. I needed family. They needed caregiving. And I kind of just... Mm-hmm myself into a few families when I first came to Calgary and I learned a lot of what I know about caring and caregiving and mothering from some of those unconventional situations mm-hmm. and then I yeah about your other question I think that's true like how can you bring the things together I had my notebook in the in the birth bed with me and I was writing because I just felt like I need to keep something of my writer self as I crossed this bridge and at a certain point it became illegible, uh, but I had the notebook right there. So I, so I love, you know, I loved what you, you brought forward there, Heidi, about how do we create the networks? And then I also really echo what you said in terms of how do you keep your writer self? Maybe you're only going to write two, two words today while you're changing that diaper or whatever the act mm-hmm. of love is, but keep the notebook there somehow keep themselves together somehow i i I think there's something about honoring the experience of mothering by writing and there's also something about not losing yourself and a lot of the pieces in this anthology where women speak bravely about coming dangerously close to losing themselves are actually losing themselves and what's the journey back and i think writing is grounding i know that for our kids I, i i kept a journal but not a journal like a typical journal. It's like, here's what I saw. Here's what I saw on you today. So you'll always remember this is who you are. And in doing that, it was an unexpected gift to learn a little bit about who I was when I think it would be easy. Because when you're mothering, well, I know my experience is it's not a lot of proud moments sometimes. And it's easy to not feel so great about yourself. And so writing, I think, helps you remember the importance of what you're doing and what you've been entrusted with and how much is at stake and remembering what you have to bring, even if it's an absolute humility or sometimes humiliation and takes, it's a really vulnerable um, experience. And so putting things on the page reminds you that there's some substance there and the tomorrow's 
a new day with a new journal entry and a new blank page, a new poem, a new essay. I love that because, you know, humility. Uh, what's the other thing you said? You said uh, like self, uh, oh, humiliation and humility. Those are absolutely come part and parcel with being the primary caregiver for a child. And it also so happens to be exactly what you need for writing, right? Interesting. It's, it's weird because you need, you need empathy. You need to be able to put the self away somewhere and think of the other. It's actually self-giving of the good. I would like, and when you self-give over and over after a while, I think you're right. Humility and humiliation are intertwined. And I actually wonder when people speak about humility, I've always been curious. Um, you know, when you, when you meet someone and you go, oh, that's a deeply humble person. And it shows in how they treat their children and how they treat their communities and other other mothers or other human beings. I, I have a, a funny feeling that the people who are really authentically humble have been humiliated versus people who appear very thoughtful. Just maybe I'm maybe I'm overspeaking. But I, I think what I appreciated ab- about the types of submissions we had for the mothering anthology was the vulnerability and openness to share experiences. Sometimes some of the some of the contributors about what was actually humiliating, actually being at the bottom, and then being able to speak about how that othered. And I think maybe the othering is to becoming a humble person. And um, and and those pieces spoke uh, sit really beautifully alongside pieces where there's just absolute tenderness and joy and goodness. But I think it's all mixed together, and you can't have the goodness and beauty of mothering without having been othered and finding yourself, as Natalie said, in a somewhat humiliated state from time to time. <laughs> Sometimes more often than not. Yeah, that's great. It's been a wonderful conversation and I've enjoyed this time. So anything else you'd like to say about the anthology uh, before we wrap up? The only thing I might say is, you know, Anne and I, and I would suspect Natalie and the other contributors would share the belief, it comes to your last question, Jean, of that storytelling builds community. And that's what this anthology is about. People telling their stories of mothering and being mothered and othering, being othered. And that's what builds community. Thank you very much for both of you for spending this afternoon talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to speak with you, Jean and Heidi. Yeah. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block is Calgary's monthly foray into the world of Canadian literature and writing. Just then, that was Jenny Kwong interviewing Heidi Grogan and Natalie Meisner on the new Mothering Anthology. You can order the Mothering Anthology from a local bookstore near you. Without further ado, that will conclude this episode of Writer's Block. If you missed the whole episode, don't worry, you can always find it online at cjsw.com. To close off tonight's episode, we will have a short poetry reading by Sylvia Plath. Thanks for listening! A secret. A secret, a secret, how superior. You were blue and huge, a traffic policeman holding up one palm. A difference between us? I have one eye, you have two. 
The secret is stamped on you, faint, undulant watermark. Will it show in the black detector? Will it come out, wavery, indelible, true, through the African giraffe in its Edeny greenery, the Moroccan hippopotamus? They stare from a square, stiff frill. They are for export, one a fool, the other a fool. A secret, an extra amber brandy finger, roosting and cooing, you, you, behind two eyes in which nothing is reflected but monkeys. A knife that can be taken out to pare nails, to lever the dirt, it won't hurt. An illegitimate baby, that big blue head, how it breathes in the bureau drawer. Is that lingerie, pet? It smells of salt cod. You had better stab a few cloves in an apple, make a sachet, or do away with the bastard. Do away with it altogether. No, no, it is happy there. But it wants to get out. Look, look, it is wanting to crawl. My God, there goes the stopper. The cars in the Place de la Concorde. Watch out. Stampede, a stampede. Horns twirling in jungle gutturals. An exploded bottle of stout, slack foam in the lap. You stumble out, dwarf baby, the knife in your back. I feel weak, the secret is out. <laughs>